Welcome to Zealots of the Gate, a podcast of Comment Magazine. I'm Matthew Kamink. I'm Shadi Hamid. Together we research politics, religion, and the future of democracy at Fuller Seminary's Mao Institute of Faith and Public Life. We are writing a book together. This podcast represents an informal space where we can talk about how to live with deep difference. Thanks so much for joining us. Make sure to subscribe to Zealots at the Gate wherever you listen to podcasts. Please leave us a review um, on your favorite podcast platform. If you want to reach us, you can connect with us on Twitter at the hashtag ZealotsPod, or you can email us at zealots at comment.org. And we do check those regularly, so we do welcome your thoughts and, of course, your criticisms as well. You can expect a sincere exchange of ideas, and we look forward to hearing from you. So for those of you who are new to the pod, Matt and I are good friends. That said, maybe we shouldn't be. We're, uh, we're sort of not the normal combo. Matt's Christian. I'm Muslim. Matt's conservative. I'm liberal, for the most part, I think. Matt's white. I'm brownish. Matt studies theology. I study political science. Matt's from the rural Northwest. I'm actually from an urban Northeast elite liberal enclave. Um, So there's that too. Our identity markers indicate that we shouldn't be friends or people who get along a lot, but we are. And that's what is special about this podcast. We explore deep difference. Difference isn't a problem. It's something we like. And Not only is it just Matt and I today, we have a special treat for all of you today. Um, Our first uh, Muslim guest to the podcast, his name is Muhammad Fadl. He is a professor of law at the University of Toronto. He's a specialist in Islamic legal history and the Islamic classical tradition more broadly. And we're excited to have him because Matt and I is part of our reading where we kind of go back and forth and give each other. Um, I give him Muslim readings. He gives me Christian readings. Muhammad Fadl has figured prominently in those readings. We've read a number of his articles. I would say he's one of the preeminent um, Islamic legal historians. So um, we're very excited to have him now. Um, Matt's been excited to talk to Muhammad because he has a question from a Christian perspective. And maybe Matt will hand it over to you to get us going. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Professor Fadl, for being on the podcast. We, um, in preparation for our conversation today, we read one of your articles, which is uh, extensive and robust and and a wonderful introduction to um, a conversation between Islamic um, political and legal history and uh, Rawlsian liberalism. Uh, The title is The True, the Good, and the Reasonable. And it was published in 2008. Um, And it's a wonderful article. And just as a little bit of background, Shadi and I, uh, we were both college students studying political science um, when 9-11 happened. And so we came up uh, in in studying law, politics, international relations uh, in this post 9-11 world in which we we were thinking a lot about the relationship between religion and politics. And this particular article is set within that post 9-11 world in which you are putting 
modern liberalism, a la John Rawls, into conversation with Islamic history, law, and politics. And um, one of the things that was going on quite a bit during that period of time was the question of, can Islam coexist within liberal democratic societies? Is, is, is Islam uh, compatible with democracy itself? And this particular article um, dives into that question. And one of the things that I can remember and I can see you know, in a lot of the literature was the suggestion that Islam needs to discover, needs to go through a European enlightenment. Uh, Islam needs to discover reason and rationality uh, like the Europeans did. And it seemed to me that in your article, you were actually suggesting uh, that Islam doesn't, doesn't need Europe for reason. In fact, uh, Islam itself has a long history of rationality when thinking about politics. And I wonder if perhaps for our, our Christian listeners who have a very light understanding of Islamic history to, to be, you know, generous. Um, I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about the ways in which reason uh, and rationality was functioning within early Islamic discussions around politics and law just as a way right. of, of getting us started. Right. I think that's an excellent question. Um, I think one of the things that is maybe underappreciated in Islamic history is that Muslims sort of experienced religious civil wars in the first century of Islam. So in the genealogy of liberalism, um, the, the the religious wars of the 17th century or and 16th century is considered kind of foundational, right? Um, you could say that Muslims experienced that too in the first and second century of Islam. And that experience of religious civil strife gave rise to the kind of what I would argue the, the synthesis of reason and religion that you see in the Sunni tradition. Right. And so much like um, religious civil wars in Europe created a dynamic toward liberalism, I would say that the religious civil wars in the first 150 years of Muslim history catalyzed theological discussion in Islam in a way that generated um, eventually would lead to the, the synthesis that led to Sunnism with this particular commitment to rational argumentation and um, a particular approach to politics uh, that emphasized, um, let's say, principled opposition, principled nonviolent opposition, right, as opposed to messianic kind of politics that would justify armed revolution, right? So in the first 150 years, there actually was a lot of violent messianic religious movements, right? And Sunnism was a reaction against that. Um, and it tried to show for like a middle path between, let's just say, blind obedience to authority and, you know, messianic, messianic politics, right? And it, it did that through the medium of law. So it elevated law to become the supreme arbiter of normativity within sort of Muslim politics, what Marshall Hodgson would call Islamdom, 
right? Um, and this law itself required a certain kind of conception of theology as being rationally accessible. Um, and this is, I think, a very important point. Because of the universality of Islam, particularly after the Abbasid Revolution and its cosmopolitan character, it was no longer an ethnic Arab religion, but it became truly sort of cosmopolitan. Um, you needed to have some conception of theology that was equally cosmopolitan. And so that required a foundational commitment to rationality as the, as the basis for belief. And so that, that, these are the kinds of political and intellectual factors that catalyze the rise of um, what I call, you know, dialectical theology, what in Arabic is known as kalam, right? Uh, also in conjunction with the fact that there's a sociological fact of just really a very large amount of, of real pluralism in the early caliphate. People don't realize this now because they look at the Middle East and um, North Africa as overwhelmingly Muslim, which it is today. But in the second Islamic century, let's say the 8th century, the Common Era, 9th century, the Common Era, Muslims were a small minority of the region between, you know, uh, Iberia and the Indian subcontinent, right? So um, it only became a Muslim-majority region gradually over time. So Muslims were in dialogue. I mean, there were rulers, but they were also in dialogue and debate with all sorts of non-Muslims, Jews, Christians, Hindus, other sorts of pagans, right? And so this, this was the cauldron, right, of different sorts of theologies, philosophies, etc. And I think that all sort of came together to create this particular synthesis in which reason had to play a very important role to justify uh, the privileges that Muslims had. Yeah, so... Uh on that, if if I could just follow up, it uh, going on with that in your article, you use an analogy or a word picture that I think is particularly helpful in understanding um, an Islamic conception of the state, uh, and that is um, you talk about the um, guards or soldiers along the path, along the pilgrimage path. That the role of the state is um, to provide safety, security order and freedom so that Muslims can, um, pursue a faithful life. Um, and so the, the conception of the state is, is ra relatively minimalistic, um, that it guards or it keeps the people safe as they are going on their pilgrimage. Um, and I'm wondering uh, if you could talk a little bit more about how you're able to keep such a, a minimalistic understanding of the state rather than filling the state with lots of religious content and with a religious mission uh, in society? How do you make that, that sort of distinction between, I guess, a, a private faith and a minimalistic state? Right. And, well, these things are relative, right? So um, in the pre-modern era, of course, the state had very important religious functions as well. I mean, had the, you know, you're giving the example of pilgrimage. Uh, one of the fundamental responsibilities of the state was to organize the pilgrimage, not simply provide physical security, but also to appoint people to, 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 to lead the, the pilgrimage, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't want 
listeners to misunderstand that, right? Um, but it was a minimal estate in the sense, in the following sense, that public officials were not considered to have some kind of priestly functions, right? So they didn't, they didn't interpret religion in any kind of privileged way, right? Um, but they, they did have an institutional role in allowing religion to flourish, right? So in Sunni Islam, uh, certain public rituals like Friday prayer requires the ruler to organize it. But the ruler has no special insight into what religion means, right? Um, and I think this is kind of, this is, this, is the, this is the point, is that the ruler is an instrument of the community rather than an instrument of God. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that distinction is, is, I mean, we find that within, um, within the Jewish tradition, the distinction between the king and the priest, uh, similarly in the Christian tradition. Um, how, how is it that at Muslims within this specific tradition uh, humble the sultan or the political leader? How, how, do you, how do you keep the political leader from spilling into those, those other functions? Well, I think just, you know, again, because I said that, the, that in this particular synthesis of Sunnism, the law is the most important mediator. So um, the simple idea is that the ruler is always constituted through and by the law. So um, if when the ruler goes beyond what the law permits, he's quite literally no longer a ruler. <laughs> so Sultan is not a person, it's an office, right? And in order to act as a Sultan, you have to be acting in a way that is consistent with the law. So if you're not acting in a way that's consistent with the law, you're just, you're just a person, right? And you're subject to the, the norms that the that the law applies to you, right? Um, so that's sort of how I would explain that answer or, or answer your question. Yeah. Um, so this, so this, I think, raises some really interesting questions about what are the ends of politics? What is the purpose of the state? In our previous, in some of our previous discussions, Matt and I have talked about whether democracy is a means to other ends or an end unto itself. As you know, Mohammed, that's yeah. been one of my preoccupations and we've fought a bit over on Twitter about that. Um, so if I, and if I can just characterize Matt's view as I understand it, is that what he calls public justice is the, is the purpose of the state. That's what the state should try to bring about. I'm a little bit more agnostic about particular outcomes, at least in the contemporary moment, but that's a little bit of an aside. But I, I am interested in the idea of a limited state, and you talk about that um, in a number of your different articles, because in the end, you need to have a minimum level of economic security. You need people to not be poor, because if they're poor and struggling and desperate, they're not going to be able to focus on religion and becoming closer to God. They need to be in a state of peace because if they're constantly fighting or um, in the thrall of some dictator's designs, then again, they won't actually be able to freely pursue their relationship with God, and that would presumably undermine 
their prospects for salvation. But I, I bring up the word salvation here because I do recall an exchange you had as part of the Boston Review Symposium on the Challenge of Democracy in Islam, and we'll include a link um, in the show notes to the article we mentioned earlier, as well as to this exchange. It's really interesting. But if I recall, and correct me if I'm getting this a little bit wrong, it's been a while, um, you talk about the importance of enabling the right circumstances for salvation, and then um, another scholar comes back and says, basically, Muhammad, this emphasis on salvation is actually an example of Christian influence, that the idea of being saved is not actually predominant in the Islamic tradition or in Islamic history as it was actually experienced. I know there's a lot there, but maybe tell us a little bit more about like what are the ultimate ends of this state right. in the kind of normative Islamic tradition? Right. Well, I think I don't think it's, it's controversial to say that for um, standard Muslim political theorists in the Middle Ages, right, the caliphate was the superior form of government because it secured both secular happiness and happiness in the next life. So Muslims did not use the word salvation. I will say salvation is probably a Christian term, but they used the word saada, which is happiness, were borrowed from Greek philosophy, right? So they thought that the ultimate end of politics was to secure happiness. Um, and happiness had two dimensions. It had a secular dimension, or you could say a uh, temporal dimension, a profane dimension, um, corporeal dimension, and it had an otherworldly dimension. And the caliphate is superior to the philosophical alternative because that's the main sort of ideological opponent. Uh, because the philosophical conception of the state from the Muslim perspective failed to secure otherworldly happiness because it had it suffered from metaphysical error, right? So sorry, which what what alternatives do you have in mind here you specifically? Know, like Aristotelian ideas of politics or Platonic ideals of politics, right? Uh, what the Muslims called philosophy, you know, uh, philosophy, uh, Greek philosophy. Um, now there's a third category which is kind of the lowest form of politics, which like Ibn Khaldun just calls mulk, just primitive dominion, right? Um, so that's the worst form of policy we call tyranny, where the state exists for the happiness of the ruler. So, you know, there's a famous fourth century philosopher, and I think I mentioned him briefly in that article you guys cited. His name is uh, Abu Hussein al-Amiri, and he writes a book called, uh, you know, Declaring the Virtues of Islam. And he has a discussion of politics, and he contrasts the Abbasid Caliphate with with the Zoroastrian state, right? And he says, you know, the Zoroastrians, it was a caste system. It was, um, you know, people were born into certain places in society and could not move. They were, everything was determined by the place of your, you know, the, your social position was determined by your birth. Religion was, bare, was purely authoritarian. It did not have any rational teachings. Um, and you were prohibited if you weren't a priest, basically, from religious speculation, you know, as on pain of punishment. Whereas, you know, Islam changes all of this. It gets rid of um, a caste system. It, it, it creates rational foundations for belief, et cetera, et cetera. And then when you look at its politics, 
it's a, it's a state, the caliphate, he says, exists for the happiness of its subjects. In contrast to tyrannies, he calls it tachallub, which comes from the Arabic word power, ghalaba, which exists solely for the happiness of the ruler achieved through his domination of others, right? And so the caliphate is justified because of the happiness it brings its subjects, according to Amiri. And I think that's a fairly common, common conceit, right? And so um, whether you want to call that salvation or happiness, that's not, you know, that, I think that's just kind of like, uh, you know, word games. Uh, but there's this idea that humans have a true set of ends and that the state, the best state, helps human beings achieve those true ends of, of being human. Shai, did you have okay. a follow-up on that or, or can, I, can I push us in a new direction here? Oh, yeah. Hey. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So, Let's hear it, Matt. So, Professor Fadel, uh, one of the conversations that Shadi and, Shadi and I have had is the challenge of the modern nation state as having a, a massive scope and level of power over society that uh, was not the case for medieval Christian or Islamic kingdoms. You know, by and large, kings and sultans didn't have the sort of direct um, um, reach into the households of their citizens that the modern nation state does. So, you know, in, in your land of uh, Canada, um, you know, the state has uh, control over schools and hospitals and um, charities and uh, is directing Canadian life in a wide variety of ways. Um, there are civil servants everywhere. Um, mm -hmm. And this is creating clashes um, for uh, religious minorities. Um, and here in the United States, we have clashes over what is taught in schools, what is done in hospitals, and, and so forth. And so the modern nation state itself, uh, is it, its scope is vast compared to simply, you know, guards along the way right. uh, of a pilgrimage. And it seems to me in your article, you really are making the case that Islam and liberalism can in some way coexist. But it seems to me that liberalism doesn't always behave in such a, a sort of a humble, small way, but it, it actually can be quite expansive right. in its goals of reforming society. So I, I'm wondering, it, in, in here, Shadi's encouraging me to push you a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm wondering, is, is it really such an easy thing for Islam and liberalism to coexist, as you suggest in the article? Well, I, I don't want to, I hope I didn't give the impression that it's easy to coexist. Um, I think one of the whole points of Rawls's theorizing is that it's, it's not easy to coexist. It takes work. Um, you know, it requires certain kinds of moral dispositions, right? It's not, it's not natural. Uh, Rawls talks about toleration as being a discovery, Right? It's not an instinct. Um, so I, I want to dispense with the idea that you know, pluralism and liberal conditions is, is easy. There's always the temptation of, to oppress. So Rawls recognizes the possibility of, of a comprehensive liberalism that doesn't respect the limits of political liberalism, 
and he calls you know he call, I think he calls out the fact of the fact of oppression. I can't remember what remember what it is, but he you know this is one thing that draws me to Rawls is that he says that um, all conceptions of the good have to respect certain limits on their applicability in order for political liberalism to survive and, and remain a, a stable constitutional order of the time, including liberalism. So uh, you're suggesting that the modern liberal state is not respecting certain kinds of boundaries, right? Um, I think probably I would agree with that with respect to certain kinds of questions, uh, certain particulars, but the problem is the Can you give us an example? Can you give us an example? Let me just just say the the theoretical problem. (laughs) The theoretical problem is liberalism doesn't have a clear idea about the line between the private and the public. So the, the division between the private and the public, although it is absolutely fundamental to liberalism, right? The content of what's private and what's public is not settled by any kind of clear philosophical principle. And the reason for this is because, I think this is the reason for this, is because in modern liberalism, unlike, let's say, 18th century liberalism, this is maybe tying back to your point about the minimalist state. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, when we were all agrarian at societies, in which 99% of us were struggling just to survive, okay? States were very weak, right? Um, We were basically responsible for ourselves for almost everything, right? Um, That all changes with the Industrial Revolution and the rise of capitalism, massive increases in population, right? Um, Division of labor is incredibly more complicated today than it was 250 years ago before capitalism and the Industrial Revolution, right? In some ways, life is a lot more secure, but in other ways, life is a lot more fragile. So I live in a city. There's probably maybe 5 million people in the greater Toronto area. Now think about problems like feeding 5 million people in a semi-Arctic environment. (laughs) I mean, it's kind of crazy. It's kind of crazy to think that this many people can live this far north, right? We don't grow our own food, you know? All the necessities of life, we depend on others to provide us. Yeah, God did, not in, God did not intend for people to live that far north. But, but, I think we can it, all agree. But it works because, <laughs> of, it works because we have a very highly efficient div, uh, division, social division of labor. Mm-hmm. And that can only be sustained because you have a certain kind of state. Right. So the state today, yes, has to get go a lot deeper into society, but that's because the nature of our political economy requires it to. That's why it's very hard to know precisely what the correct boundaries of the private and the public are, because we're also a system, a modern liberal state is not just about protecting rights in a negative sense. It's also about promoting a system of cooperation because if that system of cooperation breaks down, we, we literally starve, right? I mean, I can't go into my backyard and milk a cow or harvest some grain or anything, right? I am completely dependent 
on this system of the, this division of labor being sustained and sustainable, right? So because we are so dependent on social cooperation, I mean, political theorists always noted that we have to have, we have to have cooperation. A human, you know, Aristotle said, you know, a, a man can't live by himself. He's either, he's either, you know, an animal or a god, a beast or a god, right? If he can get along by himself. But the degree of our dependence on others under modern conditions is much greater than it was 200 years ago, right? Yeah, so, that, so I mean, that course, is the pressure. That's the pressure for uniformity, right? Is and you so have of course to make they, people uniform yeah, to, so, so that they cooperate. To, the, the demands of cooperation now are so much greater. And that's why the state has to do things like have schools. So you talk about the 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 Canadian government is in our schools. That's kind of a a weird way of looking at it because there wouldn't be schools if it weren't the if the Canadian government didn't build them and fund them. Well, why does it do that? Well, because we have to have citizens who are capable of running a modern economy. So even though it's not in the constitution that there has to be schools, right? As a constitutional right, you can't imagine a modern state existing without these schools because you couldn't have the cooperation necessary to reproduce society without an educated population, right? So things that 250 years ago would be considered within the domain of the family are now in the heart of what's a public concern, right? We can't be indifferent to the education of our neighbors because we depend on them for so much more. So, so this is the dilemma. This is the dilemma of life in a market economy, a post-capitalist market economy. Well, let me put a finer point on this dilemma because, you know, part of part of what you've tried to do in your work is to, you know, find some kind of accommodation with liberalism. And as you said, it's not easy, but I think there's another way of looking at it, which is to say, is it is it necessary? Is it something Muslims should do? And, you know, as we're already talking about, the state may be necessary and the state may have to expand, but then that does mean the state is going to be involved in substantive questions about the good life. Even if we wish it were otherwise, this is simply a fact that it's hard to, it's hard for classical liberalism to stay classical because of the expansion of the state and um, the expanding domain of what government does more questions are going to come under the purview of the liberal state or regime. And, you know, as we're seeing certainly in the U.S. and uh, elsewhere, these are more expansive visions that get involved in foundational religious questions. And obviously we don't have to get into all the background about how um, there are tens of millions of Christians in the U.S., who feel that they can't be fully and outwardly and publicly Christian under an increasingly quote unquote uh, liberal or secular American society, for example, but also the recent example in Canada of medically assisted suicide, which has, um, you know, which Americans are just starting to hear about through Ross Douthat's uh, recent column, the New York Times. Anyway, there's a number of examples, but I'm wondering. What would you say to young what would you say to Muslims who are intrigued by what you're saying but may also just be like, well, why should we do this? Why do we have to do this um, if it requires some kind of trade-off? 
Right. Well, one of the things I talked about in, you know, the true good and the reasonable is the idea of trade-offs is present in Islamic jurisprudence from a very early period. And lots of theologians said that, you know, that's just a feature of being a human being. That by being a human being and living in the profane world, um, just to sort of simplify it or put it in lay language, you know, you can't get everything that you want, right? Um, real life always requires human beings to make trade-offs. Sometimes it's a trade-off between two good things. You can't have both at the same time. Sometimes the trade-off is trying to figure out which two horrible things, you know, do you want to avoid most, right? Sometimes it's a trade-off of a mildly desirable thing against a horrifically bad thing, right? So life is always going to involve trade-offs of one sort or the other. That's according to these theologians. That's just a function of, of the limited nature of, human, of humanity because we're not infinite beings, right? So that's kind of a, 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 a simple way of, 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 of thinking about the problem. The, the, the deeper way, the way that Rawls asks people to think about it is to say, look, if you accept the idea that you can't get everything that you want, and that's not because of liberalism, that's because of being a human being, right? Um, what liberalism can do is it can secure the things that you consider the most important for you to flourish as a, as a human being from a moral perspective, right? And so if liberalism can, sue the, can, can secure the highest moral goods for you from viewed from your position, then it deserves, it's entitled to your moral support, right? Yeah, we can't give you everything, but nobody can ever give you everything. Right? So that, I shouldn't suppose, be, hmm. that shouldn't be the criterion. So the criterion shouldn't be, can liberalism give everything that an orthodox Muslim would want in a perfect society? Because even an, a perfect Muslim society couldn't give an orthodox Muslim that. Right? The, the question is, again, from a Rawlsian perspective is, can I give you the most important things that you consider valuable to you? But I suppose the question is, does, does liberalism actually secure the highest moral good for individuals? I mean, that seems to me to be an open question. I mean, yeah. okay. I mean, for, for, you know, for example, and this goes back to the question of the ends of the state. So if in, if in the classical Islam, you know, Islamic ideal and also empirically, the state was concerned with facilitating sada or happiness, which does include some conception of salvation. Clearly, the liberal state isn't trying to secure that end. It, you know, it's not necessarily trying to secure happiness in the next life. And maybe in some ways is even undermining some of the channels with which to pursue orthodox conceptions of religion. That if you feel that you can't act certain ways religiously under a liberal state, that may in fact affect your chances for the salvation that you seek. So if, a, if an orthodox and let's say particularly conservative sort of Muslim in America is thinking, well, 
liberalism is good in some ways because it allows me to avoid outright despotism, for example. But on the other hand, it doesn't allow me to pursue this broader conception of happiness that includes a life beyond this one. Then it's not a, it's not a question of getting everything they want. It's a question of which things they prioritize over others. Well, I agree with you. If it were the case, right, if it were the case that liberalism or forget about liberalism, any kind of regime that places affirmative obstacles to a Muslim or any sort of religion of an adherent, adherent of a religion from performing those positive, from living that portion of his life or her life in a way that she believes is fundamental to her moral flourishing, then liberalism can't be attractive to that person, right? Yeah. Now, the question is, is that really happening? Now, let me back up and say, even Rawls would say that not every worthwhile conception of human flourishing can flourish in every kind of regime. So he takes for granted that there might be some worthwhile ways of living that can't survive in a liberal regime, right? There is a reality of some kind of loss. Now, when I look at Islam as a particular sort of, you know, comprehensive doctrine to use Rawlsian language, there are some conceptions of, of orthodox Islam that clearly cannot flourish in a liberal state. And I'm not talking about some kind of extreme ISIS conception. I'm just talking about like something like Hanbali Islam. So Hanbali Islam says that you should pray not just five times a day, we should pray five times a day in a mosque. Okay? Now, that's just not going to be practical from the perspective of the demands that social cooperation requires in a modern liberal state. Right? So one could say, yeah, there's nothing repugnant in principle about this Hanbali conception. But that's a kind that's a way of life that will just not will be lost in a modern liberal state. Whereas other conceptions, like other schools of jurisprudence, who equally say you have to pray five times a day, but they say you can pray by yourself. You don't have to do it in a mosque, right? So that's a that's a equally Islamic conception. Um, but it but it can be compatible with liberal cooperation in a way that the Hanbali conception isn't, right? Professor, so, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so just to say, there's always there's always loss, yeah. right? So I, I want to paint a scenario of loss for you, and I'd love to hear a, a, a Rawlsian reflection on it, if you will. Um, uh, a Muslim uh, girl would like to wear. Uh, her hijab in a public space. And because of uh, some public law, she's not permitted to do that. We're aware of many scenarios in which this has happened. Um, and in defending herself in a courtroom, um, she is expected to say something like, um, I have a right to wear this because it is an expression of my personal beliefs. Um, and I have the freedom to express my personal beliefs. And, um, and so I want to wear this hijab, even though that would not be how she would truly express herself. The, the reason why she is wearing the hijab is not out of personal expression or personal freedom, but out of 
deep devotion, wanting to submit herself to Allah. So she is engaging in uh, a, a translation. She is mm-hmm. she's speaking liberal language uh, in the public square uh, rather than speaking her true uh, her true moral language. Um, and here it's essentially expected that she speak uh, a sort of moral political Esperanto, uh, that is not, that is not hers. Um, and, and, and I'm wondering if you could, uh, talk a little bit about, do you think that that's good for society that, uh, religious minorities need to speak in liberal terms in public spaces? Right. Well, I mean, that's not strictly speaking from my perspective, a problem of liberalism. It's a problem of any kind of system of that's committed to a rule of law idea. Any kind of society that's committed to a rule of law idea requires people to formulate their claims in the language of the law. So, in practice, in reality, most people don't know anything about the language of the law. That's why they hire lawyers, right? And lawyers will always make their arguments in using this precisely this kind of translation. So, you know, my father one time was involved in a lawsuit. And even though he won, <laughs> when he read what the court had to say, he found it kind of offensive. <laughs> and I tried to explain to him, well, no, you shouldn't. You shouldn't, misunder- you shouldn't misunderstand it because the way it works in the law is we assume everything they're saying about you is true. <laughs> and then we determine whether or not there's a claim. <laughs> All he could see was that they were saying these things that he knew were to be false were true, and that was making him angry, right? But that's this problem of translation is universal when it comes to any kind of regime that's going to be rights-based. Now, does that mean that when people make claims, they're being inauthentic because they have to make their claims in a language that is not theirs, right? I, 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 it kind of proves too much from my perspective, right? So maybe this woman doesn't understand the difference between a freedom of expression claim and a freedom of religion claim. The important thing is is the law honoring her subjectivity, right? And, you know, if not, is it possible to do it in another way that would be more respectful of her, consistent with the idea of a rule of law? Because the rule of law, by definition, treats us as fungible people. So I don't know if you saw this piece of mine it's a blog piece on contending modernities. I talk about this concept that the Hanafis have about what's the grounds for human inviolability. And they talk about moral inviolability and legal inviolability. And moral inviolability is, the found, is, is what's foundational, so it makes us human beings. But moral viability or inviolability in and of itself is only vindicated by God in the next life. Legal, vi- legal inviolability, right? The kind of rights that law gives you, remedy is when your body is trespassed against. 
that's secondary to our true human nature because it treats us as a, as a thing. So you can't, their point is that you can't assign value to the human body without treating it as a, as a thing, as a commodity, right? By assuming that people are fungible. And so that's contrary to our nature. But law depends on this, right? Law depends on our ability to treat what in reality are all unique persons, to treat them as though they're the same. So that's kind of the root of the problem that I think you're, you're, you're raising, Matthew. It's yeah. just, again, the, the cost of being human. Right, right. And uh, I got one, one last one here for you, and then I'll, I'll let Shadi get in here. I've got so many more questions. This is great. Um, you mentioned earlier that it's, it is very difficult to live in a pluralistic society. It, is, it actually requires a lot of us, tolerance, um, you know, living as you do in Toronto, a, a global, very diverse um, city itself. Um, moving through those streets, uh, passing people with deep religious, political, economic, cultural, racial differences, um, it requires certain virtues as, as Rawls talks about. It, it requires a, a certain democratic character. Um, but it seems to me that uh, Western liberal democracy is short on character these days. It's short on the sort of virtues that it needs to sustain itself, that people are losing patience with democracy. Um, and our capacity for tolerance seems to be waning. And so I'm wondering for Islamic citizens in pluralistic societies, um, how might they cultivate democratic virtues? Um, could their, how might their faith help them uh, develop patience with their, their Jewish and their atheist and their Christian neighbors? Um, how might they, they develop a sort of generosity of spirit because democratic liberalism requires a certain uh, generosity of spirit that I would argue Rawls can't inspire hospitality, right? He's not a very inspiring writer, right? <laughs> <laughs> he, he, wouldn't be a, he would not be a good preacher, would he? <laughs> yeah. Well, again, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll get your answer, but just I'll give, I'll give a short defense of Rawls here. Um, you know, Rawls is not trying to replace religion. I, mean, I think people need to realize this is that he is depending, his whole argument depends on the existence of a vibrant background culture in which people are sustaining these virtues through their adherence to much thicker conceptions of the good than political liberalism can allow for the state. And this is where I see the great contradiction and what worries me the most is, is not that we have too many competing, conflicting ideologies or convictions, but that because most people lack any serious convictions, that we are prone to mm. really demagogic politics. That's what Ooh. worries me more. Um, but now, going back to Islam, what kind of resources does Islam offer Muslims for 
the generosity of spirit that democracy requires? I think that's a great question. Um, I think the Quran provides some really important insights into um, how to talk to people who are profoundly wrong from your perspective, but they are your brethren in, in humanity, right? So there are lots of verses in the Quran that talks about inviting others to your way, right? With comely speech, with wisdom, um, through persuasion, right? Through trying to identify points of commonality, right? Saying, look, Christians, Jews, you don't accept Muhammad, fine. But let's agree that um, insofar as we all believe in one God and we all believe we're accountable to God, that we will not enslave one another, <laughs> right? Um, so this is important because I think one of the problems that you have with liberal toleration is that liberal toleration has the propensity to become licentious in the sense that people confuse toleration with a kind of non-committalness to truth. So Rawls is, is again, <laughs> defending Rawls. Uh, <laughs> Rawls wants to be very clear that religious freedom is not the same as religious, what he calls religious indifferentism. So he thinks that it's possible to affirm religious freedom while at the same time re affirming religious truth and religion. Because he says if you, if you deny the possibility of truth and religion, then you're going to write off religious people as democratic citizens, right? And there's a, another problem. I don't think he focuses on this too much, but I think it, it concerns me, is that if you divorce truth from religion, which I do think is, a, is sociologically happening in places like the United States and Canada, right? Then you're having a broader impact of just making people indifferent to truth generally. And I think this is one of the biggest problems that we have in our democracy. We talk about a post-truth world. Well, yeah, because we have confused tolerance with truth. So we think that the way you achieve tolerance is by denying the existence of truth. Instead of learning to live with people that we consider to be in error. Because now we believe that saying somebody is in error is intolerant. But that's not classically how we view toleration. If toleration effaces the distinction between truth and falsehood, then you can't, there's nothing to tolerate. Tolerance implies that you're accepting something despite a defect in it. But if there's no such thing as true or false, then toleration is meaningless because everything's the same. And so this, I think, is, you know, represents the, the real threat to democratic discourse because 
Democratic discourse requires citizens to be able to exercise judgment. But if we get rid of the idea of true judgments and false judgments, then we have really serious problems. Yep. So um, that's great because I think that this point that conviction is actually a good thing for democratic health is actually underappreciated. We assume that we suffer from too much conviction and too much conviction leads to excessive polarization and so on. But if anyone has, you know, been on Twitter, seen the superficiality of our debates, that superficiality suggests that people aren't actually acting based on deep abiding convictions based on comprehensive doctrines. And maybe if they had more of that, um, first of all, conversations would probably be more substantive, but also perhaps less polarized. But I do want to just use this use this juncture to circle back to questions around reason and rationality in the Islamic understanding, because I think that there is an assumption that liberalism or what we today consider um, the liberal tradition or liberalism is synonymous with reason and rationality in that, you know, as Matthew said earlier, that religion tends to be associated with irrationality and a sort of, you know, mysticism of a sort. You know, and this makes me think of other things that you've talked about, Muhammad, in your work, which is how maybe in some ways Islam has become more rationality oriented than it even used to be initially. And I'm thinking here about changes that happened in the 20th century, that there was a certain strain of Islamic apologetics that felt very insecure around the dominance of Western secular ideologies. And there was a conscious effort on the part of early 20th century Islamic reformers to go out of their way to say that Islam not only was a reasonable and rational religion, but that it was actually more reasonable and more rational than Christianity was. And so if you look at authors, um, uh, theologians like Rashid Rida, for example, who does quite a lot of this, and I just pulled up, uh, so for example, Rida says, Islam is, quote-unquote, the religion of reason. It is the ally of the sciences. It is nearer to mankind's innate disposition and intelligence. He also tells his readers, you may come to know your religion's truths through logical proof and evidence. And in contrast, he portrays Christianity as a religion of magical thinking. He says, for example, that the word reason is not mentioned in the Bible. I'm not sure if that's actually true, but, you know, whatever. Um, so I'm just interested in that, you know, the, there. so the, this I think is an important thing to mention because I think it turns a lot of conceptions of Islam upside down, that when you think about um, 20th century developments in Islam, you think Islamism, all of these Islam move, Islamist movements who want to copy and paste the 7th century. But one thing that I always try to remind people is that if you look at modern Islamism, and Islamism only exists in the modern period because for you know reasons we don't have to get into, but it's it's very consciously trying to make Islam reasonable and practical because they want to show that Islam has something to say for the modern era. So it fits into a lot of what we've said about 
the role of the state, that Islam feels a need to catch up. And these Islamic thinkers are basically emphasizing the centrality of reason in Islam. So I bring this up for a couple of reasons. One is that the emphasis on rationality can oftentimes lead one in an illiberal direction because ultimately um, people like Rida are, you know, to one degree or another, Islamist thinkers. They believe they want to put the role of Islam and Islamic law in a central place in public life and politics. But I'm also wondering about this because one thing that Matt and I have discussed a lot through our readings is this sense that I have as a Muslim that I, I was raised with Islam as, as having a certain kind of mathematical precision. Like even the <laughs> way I remember, you know, people at Sunday school talking about good deeds and bad deeds, it was literally mathematical that if you did this good deed, you would get 27 times the reward. And even the way to get to heaven is that you want to maximize your good deeds and then you'll have a kind of very direct mathematical balancing um, where, where, you know, talking to Christians, including Matt, um, this is very much not their conception of how salvation works or about, and then obviously conceptions of God's grace and mystery and the kind of paradoxes that are inherent in the Trinity and, and all of that sort of thing. But I'm wondering, like, what are you, how do you feel about this broader issue of whether Islam has become too rational or too reason oriented? And in some ways, that has actually contributed to the clash between Islam and liberalism in a kind of counterintuitive way. Uh, there's a lot there, Shadi. So let me, <laughs> let me, let me, let me, let me back up and just make some more general observations and try to get more particular. First, you know, we, we started off talking about my article, The True, the Good, and the Reasonable. So the true, good, and the reasonable discusses a certain strain of Islamic theological and legal reasoning, which I consider to be sort of the dominant sort of orthodox strain. And I, I think it's a faithful uh, account of that. But it's not the universal understanding of Islam, right? There's There's other strains of Islam. So there's certainly a fideistic strand in Islam. That's Can you just say what old. that is for the uninitiated? Yeah. So in that, you know, the important thing is to follow text literally for the sake of following text without trying to put it in some kind of overarching rationalist framework, right? Yeah. So God so, says it, I do it. Exactly. Very simple. God, yeah. God says it, I believe it. That's it, right? Without yeah, we we have of, that in we have that in Christianity too. So so there's <laughs> definitely a strain of fideism in in Islam. I don't want to sort of say have you have your listeners think that that doesn't exist. That's definitely definitely there. And I would say um, one of the problems of modern Islam is that the the fideistic strand is very strong is very strong in modern Islam because of weak weak educational institutions, right? Um, and that's a, that's a whole different kind of, kind of story. The other issue, the other issue is that, say like around the 14th, 15th, 16th centuries, a certain kind of philosophical mysticism came to gain greater and greater influence 
in Muslim societies. So earlier theologians, many of the theologians I discussed in that article, categorically reject the role of inspiration in religious truth. They think inspiration is arbitrary, right? It's subjective. There's no way of knowing whether inspiration is true or false. Anybody can claim to be inspired, etc. And so the only means of knowing God or anything is through reason, through rational demonstration. Um, later theologians kind of become much more sympathetic to the idea of inspiration and mystical experience as a source of knowledge, right? And one of the consequences of that, particularly sort of in the post, in the Ottoman era, like if you look in Egypt, is um, a lot less emphasis is placed on formal education. So they, so that to be a, to be book educated is to be not educated at all. Right. So there is also a rise of a kind of mystical sense of knowledge. It's not irrational so much as it's super rational. So it's not fideistic in the sense that all we care about is what God said. No, because according to them, reason identifies some kind of domain above the sensible and that if you are sufficiently purified as a soul, you can access that directly, right? Um, and so that's also present, particularly um, in, in, in Ottoman society, right? So all these different trends exist. So when Muhammad, Ab when Muhammad Abdu and Rashid Rida are writing, they're writing primarily against these two other strains in Islam, fideism and this kind of mystical philosophy type stuff. Now, their anti-Christian polemics is, I think, a very old Muslim trope. So Muslim theology from the get-go has criticized Christianity as being just not rationally coherent, right? That, you know, you can talk about the Trinity how many times you want. It just, it just doesn't, it just doesn't fit together, right? And so Muslims have always accused Christianity of being a religion of pure authority, right? And that's also why classical Muslim theology rejects authority as a basis of religious knowledge. So, um, it's complicated, but I would say that I don't think I don't think we can say that modern Islamism is a development of the rationality, the rationalist tradition in Islam. Partially, it is, particularly in apologetics, but in terms of practical life, it's strongly fideist. That's mm. why lots of these sort of revivalist movements are so into, you know, having a beard, wearing, um, you know, a, a thawb and rolling it up to a certain height. Because there's also this very strong fideist element in it as well. Um, and it's also very anti-mysticism, the, the fideist part, right? But as you know, in Egypt, you still have the strong mystical strain. You know, I mean, I don't want to bore Matthew about this, but you know, Sheikh Ali Juma, you know, when he talks about, you know, at the time of the coup that the prophet was appearing to people in, in saints' dreams, telling the army to do all this crazy stuff, right? So... You know, I wish that the rationalism was dominant. That doesn't sound boring at all. I wouldn't hear about that. <laughs> uh, 
you know, it's, it, I consider it to be the predominant strain, but it's the, it's the scholarly strain. It's not soci, it's not necessarily sociologically dominant. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And, um, maybe just as we wrap up here, um, Matthew, I'm just curious how that discussion of pure authority, supposedly in Christianity, how that strikes you. Um, and maybe we can just tease that out briefly. Cause I think that that was really interesting for me to hear, but maybe just before that, I mean, what, Muhammad, what would you say is the kind of the orthodox view of Christianity as you under, as you understand it today, like if you had to describe like the the most correct Muslim position on this question of Christianity's otherworldliness or magical aspects, how would you describe it? <laughs> well, I think that the orthodox view, Muslim view of Christianity, is that Christianity teaches a most excellent practical ethic, but you know. I, forgive me, sort of blasphemous theological teachings, right? That the idea of God becoming corporeal is, you know, blasphemous, right? Much less God being crucified, God, you know, God have, you know. So all of those theological doctrines are considered to be like sort of paradigmatically blasphemous, but that Christian practical ethics are quite noble, right? Um, and so, you know, the Quran talks about a kind of love between Muslims and Christians based on the excellent virtues of Christians at the same time, telling them your beliefs are not, you can't, they're not justifiable. Right. Can you say a little bit more about the, the authority? the authority challenge of Christianity. Can you tease that out just a little bit more so I can understand that part? I think what, what they mean is that Christian doctrines about Jesus, about God existing as a Trinity, that none of these doctrines can be justified from reason, ah. that they can't be understood through reason. And so the only way you can take them as true is by, based on authority. And so they say that, that, that can't be right. That can't be true. Right. Um, okay. that, that yeah, religious I, I, truth okay. must be rationally justifiable. Okay. And Shadi, you want me to respond to that exactly how, like, no, I'm just curious, was... like, you know, anything about what Muhammad said, I'm just curious how that struck you. Cause we've talked about these issues quite a lot more informally, this question of rationality versus mystery and how that even affects, you know, as I sort of alluded to earlier, Christian understandings of salvation, which aren't really um, dependent on a kind of scale approach and much more dependent on God's grace and the right. sort of act but, of but Jackie, saving. But if I could yeah. interrupt, yeah. I mean, there's a very strong strain of that in Islam, too. Yeah, right? yeah. But, but no, I, no, I would no, say it's course. been obscured to some extent by some more modernist approaches. Yeah, and there's obviously, there's plenty of teachings that sort of suggest, you know, precise rewards for things. But there are also lots and lots of things that say that nobody goes to heaven based on simply deeds. Yeah. Right? And that mm. every, that grace is always required, if only to do the good deeds. Hmm. Right. That's, anyway, uh, sorry. That's a, that's a whole nother podcast. We're going to have yeah. to talk about that. 
Um, yeah, I think in general, Shadi, my response to the Christians rely on authority. Um, you know, obviously Christianity is a, is a massive global, uh, religion with a lot of diversity. And so there are some Christians who really love rationality and logic and, and believe that the, um, believe in the power of reason to explain a lot of the Christian faith. And, uh, they have a, they have a high level of confidence in rationality to lead a person very close to faith. Um, and others are much more skeptical of the ability of reason to lead a person to the Christian faith. Um, I myself, uh, really do value reason in many areas of my life, but I would just, you know, answer personally here. Um, I think that, um, life itself has a lot of absurdity to it, a lot of irrationality to it. And, um, in some ways, the absurdity of the cross, the scandal of it, um, is something that I find quite beautiful. Um, the, that God would die, uh, for his creature, um, fundamentally doesn't make sense. And that's why I like it. And, and that's about as hard. It, like, it's hard for me to explain, but you know, you and I had had this long conversation about law and grace and how, how can God be lawful and just, and yet also be gracious and forgiving. And, you know, we went back and forth, back and forth. And ultimately I was not able to logically rationally tie everything together. Um, and that did not fill me with a sense of failure or fear <laughs> that actually was, um, encouraging to me that, and so I guess relying on the authority of Jesus and relying on God rather than my own reason, uh, is something that helps me rest. Um, and so a, a Christian understanding of faith might be better translated as trust, a sort of um, placing a trust in something that you cannot fully prove. Um, it, and, um, and so, yeah, it's, it's difficult to fully explain in, in this short period of time, but I think that I am drawn a bit to the absurdity of the Christian faith rather than its rationality. So um, that said, Christians are going to respond to that question in a wide variety of ways. Maybe we'll ha have a uh, a Christian on who really loves reason a lot to uh, do that. <laughs> and, and it's <laughs> and maybe this is a good place to to end because I think it really does highlight that you know this might be obvious to listeners, but it's just worth reiterating that when we talk about Islam and Muslims, we're talking about an incredibly rich and diverse tradition. And as Muhammad pointed out you do have these strains that are in conversation with each other. And as Matthew just said, you can find Christians who lean towards a greater emphasis on reason and rationality and others who are more comfortable embracing the mystery. And it's, it's not, you know, it's also worth noting, it's not my strain of Islam, but there, um, there are very mystical approaches to Islam that are still quite popular in different parts of the Muslim world that do, as as Muhammad said, offer um, 
a transrational or suprarational approach, that there is something beyond reason, there is something beyond logic, and where personally, like, the, the role of love isn't as central in my own conception of Islam. In other conceptions of Islam, love can love in, in um, and the mystery that comes with love, and here I'm talking about love of the beloved, i.e. God, that that can be quite paramount in, 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 in Muslims' conception of their own religion. So at some basic level, it depends what kind of individual Muslim you're talking about and how they choose to pursue their own religious practice. And obviously that goes for um, most, if actually all religions, I would say. So with that, um, oh, Muhammad, I see Muhammad is... Yeah. Can I just say one thing? Yep. Uh, just because I think it's it would be useful just to point this out. Um, you know, we don't necessarily remember this very often today, but Islamic conceptions of God and rational religion were actually quite important in the Enlightenment. Mm. So, and quite influential in English language deism. So if you, you know, Denise Spellberg has a, has a book about Thomas Jefferson's Quran. So it's a lot more than just Thomas Jefferson and the Quran. It's basically about the role Islam played in, in English cultural life, both in England and in the colonies in the 17th and 18th centuries. And she gives a really good overview of the way Islam um, was represented, both as like a bet noir sort of among kind of fideist Protestants, but also as kind of the rational, the ideal of rational religion in the, in the, in, from the perspective of philosophers and deists. Oh man. So now I know who to blame for deism in the West. It was, (laughs) it was, it was Muslims fault. Yes. Yes. No, no, no. Oftentimes. (laughs) Yes. Oftentimes they were blamed. Yes, it's true that um, Islam was used by critics of deism deism to say, see, if you're going down the deist route, you're becoming Muslim. Um, (laughs) Any case. So, okay. Yeah, that, awesome. that's a really that's a really good thing to mention, and I think we have a wonderful reading list from this episode for listeners. So we do have Denise Spellberg's really excellent book on Thomas Jefferson's Quran. We'll include a link to that in the show notes, and also a link to um, Muhammad's articles that we discussed. And uh, I guess we did talk about John Rawls a lot, so maybe we'll also include for those of you who are like, why do they keep on talking about this guy, John Rawls? I guess, you know, among other things, he's the preeminent American liberal theorist of the 20th century. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll, I, I'll choose what to include, but maybe we can include the expanded edition of political liberalism by John Rawls for anyone who wants to dive into that. It includes his excellent essay, which is maybe a good entry point, which is called The Idea of Public Reason Revisited, since we did talk about public reason quite a bit. Um, This was awesome, Muhammad. Thanks so much. Um, My pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. Thanks to all of you uh, for listening to Zealots at the Gate. If you like what you heard, which we hope you did, you can learn more about the podcast and Comment Magazine, of of which we are a part, at comment.org where you'll find illuminating essays on politics, culture, and faith. We do want to hear from you. Connect with us over Twitter at my handle, Shadi Hamid, which is my first and last name, and at 
Matthew Kamink. And please note the Dutch spelling in his last name if you want to talk to him. Um, or you can write to us uh, at the hashtag ZealotsPod, and we will keep an eye on that. Or you can email us at zealots at comment.org. We would love to hear from you. Our thanks as well to our sponsor, Fuller Seminary's Mao Institute of Faith and Public Life. Hey, thank you so much, Professor Fadl, and it was a real pleasure to be with you. Okay, my pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, Mohammed. Zealous at the Gate is hosted by Comet Magazine, produced by Ali Crummy, audience strategy by Matt Crummy, and editorial direction by Ann Snyder. I'm Matthew Kamink. And I'm Shadi Hamid. Thanks for listening. Bye, everyone. Bye.